In Acts chapter 9, we start a new chapter this morning. Thank you, worship team and all involved for the opening mic this morning. Praise the Lord for that. Acts chapter number 9. I want to get right into the text here if possible. We're not going to do our normal longer introduction. The scene is that a man named Stephen was put to death at the end of chapter 7. And we saw that a man, a young man, probably in his 30s, named Saul of Tarsus, delighted in that. He approved. He really liked what happened in seeing this awful, bloody, violent death of this follower of Christ. Just for being a follower of Christ and proclaiming the gospel, teaching the word of God and the truth, he's put to death. And this man named Saul... On the day that Stephen dies, he begins this, he really spearheads this massive persecution. uh, And he just ravages the church and thousands of of Christians are fleeing the city of Jerusalem. And they go and they're taking the gospel with them. And so the gospel goes from Jews, chapters 1 through 7. Then it expands and all of a sudden the church now includes half Jews because of what happens in chapter 8 with the Samaritans. And then by the end we saw Philip ministering to a eunuch. Uh, This is a man who apparently wanted to be Jewish. He just physically couldn't. So he's kind of on the outside aspiring. But here's where we're heading in chapter 10. The last group's going to come into the church. And that's us, these Gentiles. And Peter is going to be the one that God uses to open the door to the church for Gentiles. But there's going to be an apostle, a special apostle for us. And inserted in all of this activity, we're getting ready to have... Two or three weeks of looking at this man, Saul of Tarsus, again. He's the one who's been spearheading the persecution, but things things are about to change in his world this morning as we look at this text. So, I don't know that I need to do a long introduction there. Uh, Again, Saul has been persecuting the church. If I could word it this way, guys. What we're about to read, I wouldn't die for this, but I'm going to propose to you. I really believe this. If we were able... And if, if it was possible, and if we had the resources to really take our time and go around and really research, I believe if we could go back to the year, or no, the weeks preceding verse 1 here, and if we could go the whole world over, and this is our assignment, we're, we're time travelers and we've got resources, we're going to go the whole world, world over, and here's our assignment. I want you to find like the single last person who will ever become a Christian. I think we'd land on this guy right here. I found it. <laughs> I know this guy will never become a Christian. What makes you say? He hates Jesus. He hates Christians. He's hunting them down like an animal. This guy hates them. Well, he actually gets converted here this morning. His conversion is so important. Luke, you got to understand this. Luke is the author of the book of Acts and the gospel. It's so important. He gives this conversion story three times. One, as a historical narrative and then twice by Saul or Paul you'll hear me say Saul Paul same man twice by his own testimony later on in chapter 22 and chapter 26 that's how important this event is this is major in the whole scheme of things uh, this man is is he's my favorite in, in the whole Bible besides uh, the Lord Jesus obviously and he should be yours as well just throwing that out all right so here's what I want to do let's read verses 1 through 9 this morning And we actually have five points. I'm kind of telling you the first point is not found in the text. And the last point, so it's going to be introductory about this guy Saul because he's so important. We're going to kind of note a few things about him. 
Then we'll have three points, Lord willing, within the text. There are kind of three sections. And then we kind of need to do a summary of the text as our fifth point, kind of an overview close up there. uh, Verse number one, would you look at that with me? Here we go. But Saul, so again, we saw him at the beginning of chapter eight, spearheading great persecution. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder. Still breathing threat. I mean, it's the, it's the breath he breathes, man. It's, it's his life. This is as natural to him as breathing. He's still just breathing out threat. They think leaving is going to save their lives. That will not work. I mean, this guy is concerned. Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's not against the apostles. It's against all the disciples, all the followers of the Lord. So much so, watch what he does. He went to the high priest. We know the high priest's name is Caiaphas. This tells us something. I don't know that this Saul of Tarsus was a member of the Sanhedrin court, the 71. Maybe he was a little young for that. But he is a very powerful man, an extremely powerful man, because he wants a meeting with the high priest and the chief priest of the Sanhedrin, and he gets it. Hey, Caiaphas, yeah, need to meet with you. I need something from you. And he gets what he wants. You can't get a meeting with the president of the United States. This young man gets a meeting with the high priest. Verse 1 again, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the high priest of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. Caiaphas, I need letters of authority. I'm going to to Damascus, and I need to be able to go into their synagogues. Why? Verse 2 continues. So that if he found any belonging to the way... The way, I'm not going to go back and preach on that this morning. Let's just say that's the first title given to what we now call Christianity. Why is it called that? If I had to guess, it's John 14. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the way to heaven, the way to have your sins forgiven. He is the way to God. And so the people who put their faith in him are in the way through Christ. He's the way, the door. So Saul needs letters to go to Damascus, 150 miles away, 150 miles away, like seven or eight days of journey to get there. He's going there, and he's hunting Christians. He needs these letters so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound, literally in shackles, one translation said, bound to Jerusalem. I'm going 150 miles. I'm going to that city. I'm going to go to all the synagogues. I'm going to round these people up. We're going to bring them back, and he's going to take some men to help him do it. Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, almost there. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, I don't know if this falling to the ground is out of reverence, out of respect, so startling, or did the force of the light, you say light doesn't have force, did the force of the light just knock him down? Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? The word Lord there, be honest, it can mean sir in its most watered down usage. It can mean, who are you, sir? But this voice, this person, this light is coming to him in the wide open air. He knows this is the Lord. Who are you, Lord? What do you mean? Why am I persecuting you? Who are you, Lord? And he said, again, verse number five. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
But rise, and again, I'm going to go ahead and tell you. Remember we said there's two other places. You would have to look at all three of these conversion stories. It's not, they're not contradictory. You'd have to put them all together and complement each other to get a full version. There's a little more that happens between verse 5 and 6 in this chapter. But now let's move forward. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And then after a time, Jesus tells Saul, but rise, rise, and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. So they're standing at this point. I'll tell you, they too were knocked down. Saw that in later chapters. They're standing now and they're speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. This is blowing their mind. They hear something, but they don't see anything. And then Saul rose from the ground. And although his eyes were open, so he stands, his eyes are open, but he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, just as he was told. And then for three days, this will be our last verse this morning, for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. When's the last time you've gone three days without eating or drinking? I've never gone three days without eating or drinking. I've gone three days without eating, never gone three days without drinking. That's how powerful this event was in this man's life. So we have nine verses. I, I told you the first one kind of be an introductory. It's not really out of the text. I want to just, while we're here, and because this is such an important figure in the Bible, let's talk for a moment about Saul the man. Just, just do Saul the man. I want to put some things in your mind. I hope you're going to be with us for months and months and months, and years to come. And so as we're doing this, this is maybe a good time to very quickly go through and learn some things about Saul. Paulus. Saul, Paul. I often call him Paul. I usually call him that. I want to give you five things on your handout, but I'll maybe add a sixth one if time allows. Number one, would you write this down if you're taking notes? Saul was a Hellenistic Jew born in Tarsus, and Tarsus was actually a city that was well known because of its university. So Saul is a Hellenistic Jew, meaning he's, he's a Jew. He's a Jew. His mother was a Jew. His father was a Jew. He's not Samaritan. He's not half Jew and Gentile. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, but he was not actually born in the native land of Israel. He's born outside of Israel. And again, this place he's from is like on the border of modern-day Turkey and Syria, up in the northeast, above the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. That's where this man was born. His town, so when I said about this being well-known for university, there were three, in, three prominent cities in the Roman Empire that were especially known for their great universities. It's Athens, Greece, Alexandria, Egypt. And Tarsus, this land right here. So he's born and raised in a town that's very well educated. Number two, just like his father, Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee and a Roman citizen. That's important. Both those are important. His father was a Pharisee. And the thing is, they estimate that there were only around 6,000 Pharisees. So he's not just a Jew. He's a Jew who observes the strictest order of the commandments of God. I mean, these people are really devout. They're really serious. Their life is dedicated to this. This man is a Pharisee. His father was a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee. His father is a Roman citizen. That's going to be important later because that's going to give him some ministerial protections. Third thing about this man. Let's go back to education. This is probably the most uniquely... It, not pro, listen, listen, listen. This is the most uniquely educated man in the history of the world outside of Christ himself. I'm going to propose to you the first one. The other two I know for certain. It is quite probable that Saul of Tarsus was, first of all, educated in a liberal arts 
study at the universities of Tarsus. And I know the trap that we fall into because we think this is 2023. We're really smart and we're a lot smarter than they were then. Guys, listen. A few years ago, we spent two years studying a book that this man wrote. And we've not spent two years studying books by anybody else that's written today. If you go read the book of Romans, you will know this man is brilliant. He's super well trained. You say, well, Jeff, the Holy Spirit just picks these guys up when they write the Bible. And that is true. But their personality and their giftedness and their experience comes out in their writings. This man had a tremendous education. But it seems somewhere in his youth, he gets accepted down in Jerusalem. And so he changes and he moves location. And he's going to be taught the Old Testament. That's their Bible of their day. By the greatest rabbi of the day named Gamaliel. So the best teacher is going to train this young man in the Bible of their time. So he knows the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He knows it. He's been taught the best of the best. But the third thing about his education is it's so unique to Saul of Tarsus. He not only had the liberal arts education, unlike the 11 or the 12 apostles, the others. But he was taught the Old Testament by Gamaliel, unlike the others. But he was also taught by the Lord Jesus Christ himself personally out in the Nebatean desert for a period of time in Arabia. And so this is part of his training. Jesus himself, I'm reminded in the book of 2 Peter, I believe it's 2 Peter chapter 3, where even Peter himself talks about the writings of the apostle Paul and how they are scripture and how some things in them are hard to understand. Here's what that tells me. Jesus taught and trained Saul of Tarsus, who we call Paul, things he didn't teach the other 12 apostles as he walked with them for three years. He gets special training by the Lord because he has a special task. Number four, Saul the man. Number four, he's a natural leader. And when I say extreme, I mean he's a natural leader with extreme zeal. Extreme, extreme zeal. Zeal. So I want you to take a moment. As you're writing that, that's a quick note. Think in your mind, who do you know in any area of life, somebody you're like, man, I know a zealous person. Think of them. Who is, who is a zealous person? I thought of two people. I want to tell you who they are. I thought of two people, man, they are really zealous. When you are zealous, man, you're not easily satisfied. Obviously, a lot of sports kicked off yesterday or today or tomorrow and a lot of that. In, in the athletic world, it's like that, that coach that's not just wants to get a job and wants to have a good team. He wants to build a program. He doesn't want to have a good program. Man, he wants to win not a championship. He just he wants to win championships one after another and start stacking them up. He wants to have the best. I mean, not just a good I want to be this is the athlete that not just wants to, hey, I want to make the NBA or I want to make the NFL. I want to get a no. I want to win championships. I want to be the best of all time. These people are super driven. That's this guy. When other people are no doubt thinking, Saul, man, you did it. You ran those Christians right out of Jerusalem. His, his attitude is, no, that is not the goal. They need to be brought back and stand trial. They need to be tortured. They need to be put to death. I will hunt them down. I mean, whoa. This guy is extremely zealous. Can I ask you a quick question? What are you zealous about? Take a moment. What comes to your mind? What do you get passionate about? What do you get stirred up, excited? Gives more of your energy. Be honest. Is it going to matter in 100 years? Fast forward, it's 2123. You say, Jeff, 2123, I'm not even. uh, Is it going to matter? This man was zealous about things in his mind that mattered greatly. 
This next one I'm going to throw out. I'm throwing it out. I would not, I'm not saying this is official. Throwing it out. Just putting in your mind. Saul means desired. Paul, I read one time, is the idea of little. The idea of, in the Roman world of little. Saul Paulus. One ancient writer actually referred to him as Saul Paulus Trichibitalis. Tri means three. Trichibitalis. We know that a cubit is from an average man's hand from his elbow to the tip of his fingers about 18 inches. Not official, but the word is Paul fit him because he's a very small man. Definitely way under five feet. Possibly around four foot six inches tall. And so if you're like, that's not how I pictured, you might want to adjust. Really small man. Really big spirit. People are afraid of this guy. And he just demands respect. And he has power. Would you write the last one down? This is the man that God used to write 13 books of scripture. 13 books. Not saying he wrote the most volume, the most words of scripture. He didn't. But he wrote far more number of books than anybody else. Moses wrote five. John the apostle wrote five. Moses is wrote the, by far the most volume. Even Luke right here with Luke and Acts combined probably are more words actually than all of 13 of Paul's books. But nevertheless, this man is uniquely gifted. And I mean, the church gets a lot of its doctrine from these 13 books written by this unique apostle to the Gentiles. And here we're getting a, a, a backstory of his conversion this morning. Number two, would you notice in verses 1 and 2 with me this morning, Saul's murderous mission. Saul's murderous mission. So kind of a little background on Saul the man. Now his murderous mission. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any of the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So guys, listen. This is Saul the great persecutor. This is Saul the great blasphemer against the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the thing you got to understand. In his mind, at this time, he is neither one of those things. He is not, now he, he knows at this point now that, again, we're in 2023, he's in heaven. He knows what he, he did, and he knows after he got saved that he was a blasphemer and an insolent man and an opposition and a persecutor of the church. But at the time he's doing it, he does not see what he's doing, his actions. That is not persecution. This is service to God. I am serving God. This is urgent. This is necessary. Somebody must be doing this. Why? Because in his mind. That man, Jesus, is an absolute heretic. He is a heretic. We were right to put him to death. In Saul's mind, his followers are going around telling everybody that he's raised from the dead. They're a bunch of liars. They need to be put to death. And he has, honestly, guys, he has Bible for what he believes. He could, he could stand and tell people, like, listen, no, the Bible is clear. If you die hanging on a tree, you are cursed by God. That man died cursed by God. Well, that is true. He never saw the whole aspect how Christ became a man to have the sins of the world put on him, judged by God, but paying the price and rising again from the dead. He couldn't see all of that. In his mind, y'all think he's the Messiah? He claimed to be the Messiah. He couldn't be. He's in opposition to the book of Deuteronomy. He's cursed. This makes no sense in his mind why Christians would be claiming this. Very zealous man. Again, I will add this. He's not satisfied with just running. Hey, Saul, great job, man. Mission accomplished. We ran those people right out. No, mission not accomplished. We have a lot of work to do. They must be brought back. 
So verse 2, he goes to the high priest and he asks for letters of authority. Now, I want you all to think about that. Phil, I'm going to propose something to you. And I think this is, again, I've said this, what, three times now? I wouldn't die for this. But I think this is pretty solid because this has actually bugged me through the years. So he gets these letters of authority from the high priest of Israel. He goes 150 miles to Syria, Damascus of Syria, probably the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. He's going to Damascus. What right does anybody from Jerusalem, Israel, have going to Syria and just arresting people because a man down there in their religion give this guy some letters? What does that even mean? All right, so... He goes to a place 150 miles, and I tried to think, what's 150 miles? So we'd have an idea. The best I could tell you is about three-fourths of the way, maybe a little less than that, ballpark, about three-fourths of the way from here to, to Charleston. So it's taken him seven, maybe eight days to walk down there. He gets close to it, and he has these letters in his hand. What, what are these letters all about? In the first century before Christ, so we have Christ, we have where we're at in this story, but now we're going to go back here. The Roman Empire had actually given the Jews down in Judea, Jerusalem, had given them the power and authority of what's called extradition. Extradition, again, I'm not an expert on this, but extradition is when countries cooperate with each other and make agreements and honor each other's laws so that if someone breaks a law in this country but runs and flees real quick to this country before they're caught... The laws of extradition are that we will help you, or if you need to come arrest them, you can take them back. And so here comes Saul, under the authority of the power of the high priest. The Romans had given the Jews this authority to the, Roman, to the Jewish state there in the, city, in the area of Judea. And so here's the proposition I'm going to make to you. Saul's papers that he's carrying from the high priest likely give him authority over Jerusalem refugees, not over Natives of Damascus, not like uh, Saul can just arrive in Damascus and, oh, you're a follower of Jesus? Lock them up. Shackle them up. Shackle them. No, no, we're from here. Okay, we're here to get the ones who you know have just come to your town recently. And they would start hunting them down, finding them, no doubt, in all of the various synagogues. And so that's the authority that he had, not to arrest native Damascus, but to arrest Jerusalem refugees running for their life. Can I give you one last thought before we get into the kind of the body of the message, which is verses 3 through 6. Would you look at verse 2? If he found any other way, belonging, any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Think about that. Think about this. When a persecution begins, at the beginning especially, what kind of people is the persecution targeted at? Think about that. It's just starting out. Who are we going after first? Who are we going to make an example of? Obviously, persecution is going to target those who are making the biggest impact. Those who are causing the most damage to your cause. That's who you want to arrest. Notice that two times now, Luke, our author of Acts, has told us that back in chapter 8, Paul was dragging off men and women... And now, here he tells us again, I'm going to Damascus so that if I find anyone of the way of Christ, men or women, I'm going to bring them back bound to Jerusalem. Can you imagine someone saying, Saul, dude, come down. These are women. They got kids. Some of these are mothers. You know his answer? I don't care. Doesn't matter. They're the ones spreading the gospel. They're getting what's coming to them. Like, dude, he is a wild man. 
You know what that tells me? Women, hear my wording, women were practical leaders in the early, early church. Women were practical leaders in the early church. Women were not governing leaders in the early church. They were not elders, bishops, pastors in the early church. But literally, the force of their life, the gravity and the influence of their life are such that they're some of the main ones advancing the gospel. And so I was added, I don't care men or women, they have to die. They were doing damage. Women were doing damage and bringing people to Christ. Number three, verses three through six, would you notice with me Jesus' appearance to Saul? And this really is the heart of the passage this morning. It's, it's obvious, verses three through six. Look at verse now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone. Notice that the implication, I've read it in chapter 22 and 26 as well. None of the wording here gives the idea of a flash of light. It's not like a streak of lightning. Uh, my British boys really let me down this week. A couple of guys I read, they really let me down this week. One of them believes that Saul come up near Damascus and there's this swell and the cold air from the mountains meets the warm air that's down low and there was a thunderstorm and, and Saul was blinded by the thunderstorm. Like, come on, William. William's dead now, but still, like, come on, man. you got to be kidding me. You know? And then another fella, uh, Brother N.T., he's like, oh, I don't know what was happening. He's like really dwelling on Ezekiel. And he really put himself into this vision that Ezekiel has. And he's imagining it. Next thing you know, he's worked himself up so that it happened in his mind. It's like, why can't y'all just let the miraculous happen and let's take it for how the Bible describes it? I don't know. It's a little dis but those guys are really great other weeks. So you'll know. I'll quote them two or three weeks. This week they let me down. That's why none of them are inspired, right? <laughs> we'll use them for the good and we'll throw away the bad. All right, here's what I want you to get. I'm not going to do it this morning. If we were to read chapter 9, chapter 22, chapter 26, side by side, here's what, this is important. We know that this happens around midday, noon. Paul in his testimony is going to say, as he's telling his own version, it was a noon. Think about that. We also know, this is important, that these other men saw a light. But they didn't see all that Saul saw. We know that they heard a sound, but they didn't hear the distinction of sound. They didn't hear the words that were spoken to Saul. So the words are spoken to him. A measure of light is given to him. They see some light. All right, so let's recap. It's about noon. It's outside, and they see something, and they hear something, but they don't see all and hear all that he hears and sees. And the other thing I want to get you is that Paul, when he's telling the story, talks about the brightness of it. Now, where I'm standing right now, I'm experiencing a little more brightness than you guys are experiencing. And that's these things right up here. They're kind of bright. Some of you up here are like, yep, I know, know what you're talking about. And they even put off a little heat. Okay? But we're in a building whose shades are drawn, and we're inside, and so we need light. And so we turn these lights on, and it provides light inside. If we were to go out, let this sink in. If we were to go outside today, I'm looking, it, it's very sunny, obviously. And then all of a sudden, in that setting outside, you see a light shining. What does that tell you about that light? It is brighter than daylight. 
Let that sink in. Usually we think, oh, this light happened, and in the night, oh, the shepherds and the announcement of Christ. Yes, there was a light. But at nighttime, that's going to be very obvious. This is in the middle of the day, a brightness, Paul is going to say. In fact, he says this light was brighter than the noonday sun. This light is brighter than daylight, like there's daylight, and then there's this bright light shining. Our parking lot lights don't come on in the day. They pop on as it gets dark. If they were on, what good would I do out there if I had like a really strong flashlight and I stood out there I'm directing you out. Hey, watch your step. And you'd be like, you're an idiot. We don't need your little light. You've lost it, dude. Your little light. I see a little yellowish thing. You're not providing any light. We don't need any light. Brighter than the noonday sun is what Saul saw. What did he see? That's the million-dollar question. Would you write this down? One of the key lessons we need to understand in verses 3 through 6 is the light he saw was Jesus. It's very important. The light is actually Jesus himself. In fact, for Paul to become an apostle of Jesus Christ, three things had to be true. He had to have seen the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead because the apostles are witnesses to the resurrected Christ. They have to be super convinced witnesses because they will die for their witness. Not only that, they have to be called by Christ. He is. And they have to be specially trained and taught by Christ. He was uniquely. He meets all the criteria. He has seen the resurrected Lord. He saw, the, saw him as brighter than the noonday sun. As you're writing that, I'm going to borrow from F.F. Bruce for a moment. And again, I know you're writing that. If you could do two things at once, possibly, I'm going to go ahead and launch into this quote. Bruce writes the following, quote, that Saul actually saw the risen Christ in addition to hearing his voice is not expressly stated in the conversion narrative itself. I appreciate his honesty. Let me read that again. That Saul actually saw the risen Christ in addition to hearing his voice is not expressly stated in the conversion narrative itself. But it is confirmed below in the words of Ananias and Barnabas. Jeff, you just said randomly that what he saw in this light is Christ. How do you know this? Look down at verse. Again, we'll borrow from Bruce a moment. Look down to verse 17. We're not preaching this yet, but look at verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you. That's, who, that's what you saw. If that's not convincing enough, skip down to verse number 27. But Barnabas took him, Saul, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord. He saw the Lord on the road. Both of these men say that. If that's still not convincing enough... Bruce continued. I'm going to read the whole thing this time. Follow. That Saul actually saw the risen Christ in addition to hearing his voice is not expressly stated in the conversion narrative itself, but it's confirmed below in the words of Ananias and Barnabas. His own references, so Saul's own references to his conversion imply, incidentally, that he heard the voice of Christ, but emphasize, above all, that he saw him as the risen and glorified one. That's important. What he's saying is if you were to go to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 8, and Galatians chapter number 1, what you would find is in Saul's own story, it is clear, yes, he implies by implication, yes, I heard his voice, but I saw him. And it is part of my 
apostleship. I saw Christ himself. And so it brings me to a point. We've got some issues. Fact number one, I know this. The light Saul, Saul is Jesus. Know that for a fact, biblically. Number two, Jesus is God. The light he saw is Jesus. Jesus is God. That's a fact. John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews 1, Philippians chapter 3, Matthew chapter 1, a lot of ones. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. His name should be called Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Thomas bows down his feet and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus, an honest man, doesn't stop him. He lets it happen. Jesus is clearly God. The light Saul saw is Jesus. Jesus is God. But here presents the problem. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, Moses made a request. God, I want to see your glory. And God says, you, man cannot see the full glory of God. The implication, I'm adding the word full. Man cannot see the glory of God and live. So we know what happens. I'm going to put you behind that rock. I'm going to put my hand over you. And I'm going to turn backwards. I'm going to pass by. And then Moses comes down off the mountain with his face shining. And everybody's like, what in the world? He got a veiled exposure to the glory of God. The light this man sees is Jesus, who is God, but no man can see God and live. In fact, hear this, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 says, Jesus dwells in unapproachable light who no one has or can see. Did anybody catch which book I just said that's from? Which book? 1 Timothy. Who wrote that? Paul. After this. Jesus dwells in unapproachable light who no one has or can see. But I thought you... So here, all we can deduce is this. He saw Jesus, who is God, but clearly, though brighter than the sun itself, like blacks out the sun, that brightness, bright enough to make him go blind physically, but not quite bright enough to kill him. Jesus gave a veiled... Appearance, a watered-down appearance. I'm telling you, he is holy. Nobody looks like him. When you, you can't see him right now. If you were to see him for a moment of time, you would die as you are. This apparently is the closest someone has got. But it was so bright and so impactful, it literally changed everything about the way he believed. Everything how he felt, everything about his will, his volition, his actions change, his whole purpose of living changes. Total overhaul. Great event. Hold your spot here. Would you flip over with me? I told you there are two other places. Let's go to chapter 26 just for a moment. Acts chapter 26. Let's see one of Paul's own testimonies. Acts chapter 26 Again, I'm just going to jump in, start making a point here. Look at verse 14. Acts 26, 14. Paul's giving his account. Notice he says, and when we had all fallen. Earlier, we saw that the men with Paul are standing. And they're dumbfounded. But we know that at first, they fell down too. Apparently, Paul stays down longer. Verse 14. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me, saying to me, in the Hebrew language, the Aramaic Hebrew language of their day, and here's what he heard. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Hard for you to kick against the goads. John R.W. Stott helps us out. So before I give that quote, I want you to catch what I'm saying. A light shines suddenly, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. The suddenness in chapter 9 is on Paul's end. It was sudden to him, but it was not sudden to God. This is totally unexpected to Paul. Totally unexpected, but completely planned in eternity past by God. John Stott, R.W. Stott, writes the following, quote, Jesus, chapter 26, 14, likened Saul to a lively and obstinate young bullock. So picture in your mind, here's what Jesus is doing. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Saul, you know what you're like? It's what Jesus is doing. You're like a young, lively, full of energy, an obstinate, stiff-necked young bull. And God's got plans for him, Stock continues, that Jesus likens himself to a farmer using goads to break him in. Saul is like a young bull, full of energy and rebellion. Jesus is the farmer, I'm going to use you. You will do my work, but he doesn't want to do his work. And so the farmer uses goads to bring him into line and to break his will. You know, what in the world, world are goads? Well, I'm not an expert, I'm not a farmer myself, but... I'll offer this. It's when they put a harness and maybe even a plow, and this cow, this oxen has never plowed before and doesn't want to plow, but you hook them up and you give a command. But that cow is like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to pull that. I don't want to work for you. And then maybe you do this. You strike the reins on his back. And so what does that cow do? What do you think he's going to do? I don't want to pull that load. I don't want to obey your commands. And I don't like you hitting my back. So what's the cow going to do? He's going to kick. I'll show you. Bam. Well, the farmer is like, no, you're not going to show me because I've got these prods mounted on the apparatus. And so they're right behind your legs. And when you decide you're going to give me a kick, you're not going to touch me because you're going to hit that. And it's, it's going to hurt you. Here's what Jesus is saying. Saul, you're full of energy and you're full of rebellion. I've got plans for you, and you're going to serve me. No, I'm, ah! Try it again, big boy. I win this. I promise. I win. You don't win. So what are these goads? What are these goads? Stott offers three. Number one, he offers that one of the goads that are going on that Saul is trying to kick against are his doubts after hearing about Jesus' miracles and resurrection. By the way, guys, I'm not saying for sure that's one of the things that God is using. But I think Stott probably makes a good point. Because I know Saul of Tarsus is an honest man and he's a thinker. He's a thinker. And it, it seems he may not have had a lot of overlap with the Lord Jesus in their earthly lives. So I can imagine him going like, come on, tell me about these things. People say he did miracles. The enemies of Christ had to admit, oh, they were, they were real. Come on. Like, they were real. How do we explain that? It had to be the devil helping him do it. You know Saul's a thinker. I'm not in his mind. I can't testify for him. But I'm, I'm imagining he's going, but everything I'm hearing he ever did was good. It doesn't sound like them. And the other thing, this whole resurrection. If you guys knew he said he was coming back the third day, why didn't y'all just like set a guard or something out there? We did. And what happened? Something happened. What happened? The Roman soldiers said this and that and the other happened, and next thing you know, the tomb's empty. What? 
We paid them to say that they stole. Can Saul live with that? He's an honest man who tells the truth. He's a thinker. You know this has got to be like, something's not adding up. Second thing. Stott offers a second goad that he's kicking against is the teaching and the death of Stephen. We know Stephen's death has something to do with Saul. This has to bug him. Saul, with all of his knowledge of the Old Testament, cannot defeat Stephen in a debate. Stephen takes the, the Bible of their day and he makes it look, man, he goes backwards and forwards. He makes it look just like it's talking about Jesus. And Saul and all of his buddies can't do anything to stop it. Man, it actually makes sense the way he lays it out. And then when Stephen died, I mean, the guy died with joy and he's praying for us. I've never seen anything that's blowing his mind. Really bugs him. So if you're sitting here this morning saying, Jeff, let me get this straight. Saul got saved because he had doubts in his mind and because of the, of the life and the teaching and the death of Stephen. No, I'm not saying that. He got saved because he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. But these things are happening behind the scenes showing that God was already working in his life. And then the last one we know from Romans 7 and Philippians 3, Saul has an internal thing going on. Here's another, this is a definite one. He knows that out, outwardly he can appear like he's keeping the commands of God, but inwardly he can't keep the commands of God. In fact, one of them in particular is really driving him nuts. Do y'all remember what number commandment is driving him nuts? What number? Number what? Anybody remember Romans 7? Anybody? Going once? Which one? Is he like, when this, I couldn't defeat this. I knew I couldn't live up to this because this shows us that God's even holding us accountable for our thoughts. Which one is it? Coveting. Would you write that down? He's aware. Yes, he could outwardly keep the commandments and appear to a human being as being blameless according to the law. You could follow Saul around. You're not going to find him breaking. He's not going to be serving idols, taking the Lord's name in vain, outwardly disobeying his parents, murdering somebody, committing adultery. He's not going to be doing that, but man, that tenth one really caused him problems. And he knows that if God's going to hold us accountable for even our thoughts, he's in trouble. So here in chapter 9, I'm going to offer to you, I'll not turn there, but I'm going to propose to you there's a gap of time between verse 5 and 6. And here in my mind, I'm wondering how long was that gap? How long is the gap? Between chapter 9, verse 5, and between chapter 22, 10. You say, Jeff, what is the chapter 22, 10? I'll, I'll share it in a moment. Watch verse 5. Back at verse 4, falling, head, uh, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I believe there's a gap of time and a pause between that. This is just my opinion. Between that and his own testimony in chapter 22, verse 10, where he says, What shall I do, Lord? I believe it's something like this. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. What shall I do, Lord? You'll rise up, you're going to go into the city, and then it'll be told what you are to do. Jeff, why do you think there's a gap of time? Because this revelation changes everything. In a moment of time, in this shining light, in this clear voice with its content, in this revelation that Jesus is alive, 
He is resurrected. They've been telling the truth. I've been wrong. My theology is at best incomplete and insufficient. And if you're who you say you are, then my actions have been like horribly sinful. I'm on the outside of the people of God. They're the people of God. I'm on the outside looking in. It's just like blows his mind. Everything's got to change. Have y'all, there's a Bible word for that. My thinking has been totally wrong. And what I've been doing is totally sinful. What's that Bible word? Repentance. You ever had that moment in your life where it's like, I'm in trouble. We have to repent. Go back to verse 4. Just a couple of quick thoughts and we're going to the fourth thought. Look at verse 4. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And when he finds out the persecuting me is persecuting Jesus, Write this down. Stuart Custer offers that this question, Saul, why are you persecuting? No, did y'all notice what Saul did not do? Why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I'm Jesus. Do you notice what he didn't do? How am I persecuting you? He doesn't do that. He knows how he's persecuting Christ. And there's a lesson that's coming there, and Custer hits on it. He writes, this question was the seed that the Lord Jesus Christ planted in the heart of Paul <clears throat> that would grow into his doctrine of the body of Christ. In a moment of time, Saul learns a valuable lesson. Wait a minute. I've not actually done anything to you personally, but if I mistreat any of your followers, I am actually mistreating you because your people are part of your body. And this is going to be a dominant theme in the writings of the Apostle Paul. I hope everyone hears this. I'm not going to develop. I'm not going to preach on it. I don't have time. I just hope you'll take a moment and really feel the weight of that. Because this is a true thing. People who are followers of Christ and put their faith in Christ are brought into a body with Him. And He is the head. And so if you mistreat Christians... You are mistreating Christ. Guys, it's more than that. Do you understand that when you become a Christian, you are unified? It, all of us in here today, not everybody in here is a Christian. I highly doubt that. I don't think everybody in here is. I don't know who is and who isn't. God knows. But all of us who are truly Christians, do you understand? We are unified into one body. We're unified. Could you imagine a ridiculous... If, what if my right hand and my right arm really have it in for my left knee? And just all the time, I'm just like, man, I'm waking up in the night, and my right arm and my right hand have grabbed a hammer, and they're just flailing on that left knee. You say, Jeff, that would never happen. It's the same body. It's the same body. Worse yet, would that right hand and right arm turn on the head? Not going to happen. The head is in charge. If you're an unsafe person here this morning, you need to understand, if you do anything to mistreat a Christian... Jesus is taking note. You're hurting him. He will not take it lightly. You will pay for that. If you are a Christian, you're in the same body. We don't attack each other. We love each other. We're gracious to each other. The last thought before we hit our fourth point this morning is in verse 6. What shall I do, Lord, is what Paul asked back in chapter 20. What shall I do? And the Lord answers him, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Rise, 
Y'all feel that? It doesn't take long. Jesus immediately starts exercising lordship. Here's what you're going to do. You're mine. You're not going to kick against the goads anymore. I've revealed myself to you. You are now mine. You work for me. You're going to rise up. You're going to go into the city. And then you're going to be told further instructions. And you know what Paul did? He got up and he went into the city and he gets told further instructions. There's a little subtle principle in that verse 6. I don't want us to miss it. Hold your spot here. Go back a few pages. John chapter 7. Go back a few pages. John 7. You got your Bibles. John 7. Let's go back over there just for a moment. John 7. Because here's the principle I want us to get. It may, it may be 10 people this morning. Maybe 10 people. And here's, here's where you're at this morning. Hey, man, I, just, I, I need God's clarification. I need God's will for my life. Well, there's a principle. This Bible, we talked about this last week when we talked about the Word of God and the prompting and leading of the Holy Spirit. Or was that two weeks ago maybe? I forget. We know that this is the will of God for believers, but now what about specific individual clarification and directions for our lives? What about specific direction for our life from God? And somebody here this morning may be like, It is weird that you are saying that. I need clarification. I need to know God's will for my life. Well, verse 6 of chapter 9, back in Acts, gives us some indication how that happens. God's will is revealed in stages, specifically, individually, as we obey what we already have. Listen. As we obey what we already have, then we get more specific things. What shall I do, Lord? You'll get up, you'll go into the city, and then it'll be told. As, don't go back to Jerusalem. Go back to Jerusalem, you, nobody's going to meet with you. You'll go into Damascus like you're planning on, and then it'll be told to you. Look at John chapter 7, verse number 17. Jesus says, if anyone's will, if their will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. This is tricky. I'm going to just hit it. Not everybody's going to get this, I don't think. How does this guy know his letters? He's not been taught in our schools. How in the world? It's not my teaching, Jesus says. It's the teaching of the one who sent me. But here, you want to know, am I a fake or a phony? Here's, here's, here's the truth for you. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. If your will is to really and truly do God's will, then you'll be able to discern, am I a fake or a phony? So here's, let me wrap this up. Before we hit our fourth point. Ready? If you're here this morning and you're like, man, I really need to know God's will. I'm at, I'm at a crossroad. I've got to make a decision in some specific things. Question one for you. Be honest. When God reveals his specific will for your life, are you going to do it? Start right there. When I want to hear what it is. No. No. I want to hear what it is and then I'll evaluate. No. Will you do it? Is your attitude, God, I I need to know your will. I'm going to do it. Number two, have you prayed for guidance on that? James chapter 1 verse 5, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of a God who gives to all men liberally. And upbraids not, and it shall be given him, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Will you do it? Have you prayed? And then number three, the obvious one in context here, are you already doing the things that you know you're supposed to do? Number four, back to Acts. Chapter 9. Saul and his companions' response in verses 7 through 9. 
Saul and his companions' response in verses 7 through 9. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Do <sighs> y'all remember what I said earlier? They, they hear, and can I do it this way? Light hits, they all go down. They stand back up, and they're witnessing, to, I don't know how long this took, but they're witnessing a conversation, but they're only hearing a sound on one ear, one, one side, and they're hearing Saul of Tarsus clearly on the other. There's a noise, they don't hear words. There's a noise, and then they hear, who are you, Lord? And then there's more noise. And I believe a pause. And then, what shall I do, Lord? And then there's more noise. And then Saul stands up and he's got his eyes open, but he can't see anything. And he tells them to lead me into the city. And they lead him into the city. And for three days, he can't eat or drink and he still doesn't have his sight. Would you write this down? These men are important because their testimony and their presence shows that this is an actual objective event. It's a real event. This is not just Saul coming into town. Hey, I was out by myself on the hillside and this happened. No. This is not Saul saying, you know what? I think I'm going to just turn against Judaism. I think I'm going to actually stop murdering Christians and I'm going to start being one of them. No, that's not what happened. This is a real objective event. This is not like Saul's imagination got overheated and he imagined the whole thing. No, this was real. And so sure enough, Saul is led into the city. But it's not the entrance he envisioned, man. He thought he was going to, to Damascus. He was going synagogue to synagogue and he was going to be arresting people, bringing them bound in chains. And now he is blinded and he's being led like a little child. Stumbling because he's not used to blindness. There's a blindness from not enough light, and there's a blindness from too much light, and he's the latter. So why is he not eating or drinking? I want to propose this to you, and then we'll hit our fifth thought this morning. He's struggling. Why is he struggling? Because in his world, please get this, this one revelation of Jesus changed everything, and it showed him that I've got to rethink my whole theology. And so for three days, he's just laying there and he's thinking. I imagine he's not talking. He's not eating or drinking. They're all worried about him. Is he even going to live? Man, what? Man, I don't know if he's going to recover. And he's just sitting there. One thing. Jesus really is who he says he is. He is the Lord. He appeared to me out there. He spoke to me. That affects everything. It changes everything. This applies to everything. I've got to totally overhaul. Have you ever had that happen in your theology? Boy, I did one time. See, I grew up being told that Jesus is, is God and he's the Messiah, the Christ. So this was not my big moment. For me, it was when I was in my mid-20s, early 20s. I started, I don't know why, somehow missed it in Bible college. We didn't talk about it in the dorm. It surely wasn't taught to me. And finally, my mid, early, in my mid to early 20s, I started wrestling with something. Finally, I, like my family gave me a study Bible in 1999, or actually 1998 for Christmas, and I made up my mind, January 1 to December 31, I'm reading the whole way, I'm reading everything in the Bible, cover to cover, and I'm going to start looking for things that apply to this, this doctrine, and for me, once I started doing that and being honest with the scriptures, I started realizing this doctrine affects everything, and it's all over the place. Got me a little red pen, I started highlighting that, 
reading just my normal reading, not looking for oh, look at there. And I missed hundreds of them, missed hundreds of them. But I still saw plenty. And you're like, what was that doctrine? Y'all know what it is. The sovereignty of God, the control of God. And once I started being honest, it changed everything. And I had to rethink, wow, this affects everything. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. You'll see, it's everywhere. So number five, let's just take a quick moment and talk about some lessons from Saul's conversion. So guys, got to tell you, there are some things to Saul's, this conversion story, this bright light, this open air, this sound, this Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, all of that. Don't expect that to happen in your life. Don't expect to hear that from anybody else. That's not the, the benchmark. That's not normal. It was unique to him. Please hear that there are some things in this text that are unique to Saul, but there are some things in this text that all people need to understand. All people need to understand because these there's, there's at least three principles that apply to all situations. Here's one. I told you it's everywhere. I wasn't looking for it. This is literally obvious. Number one, lessons from this that everybody could take away. Number one, salvation is a matter of sovereign grace. Salvation is a matter of sovereign grace. Salvation is a matter of sovereign control. God's in control. It's a matter of grace. Put both those words together in your mind. Grace. Grace means it's a gift. We use this phrase, it's an unmerited favor, an unmerited gift, an unearned. It's, watch, it's undeserved. It's undeserved. Guys, those are good. Can I just tweak that last one? Just tweak it a touch to make it slightly stronger. Man, the salvation of God is a gift of grace. It's undeserved. It is undeserved. But could we say it is not deserved? It is not. Everybody in here who's saved, it is not deserved. You do not deserve it. This guy's going along, persecuted Christians, hates Jesus. You got to see this. It's so clear. Well, predestination, foreknowledge, election, choosing. I just don't know about that. Jesus chose this man. He sure didn't choose Jesus. He hates Jesus. He would never choose Jesus. Jesus says, I choose you and I will get you. Salvation is always a matter of sovereign grace. The other guys heard something and they saw something. They didn't hear what he heard. They didn't see what he saw. You say, Jeff, hold on. Do, do you think these other guys actually got saved? Boy, I hope so. I don't know so. Surely, no, no, maybe not surely. I'm like you. I would think, man, after all that and the massive change in his life and that testimony and in his teaching, you would think. But I've also had some other times where I would think, man, couldn't have been made more clear and they're just not there. What's happening? Can I word it this way? It's grace. God does not owe salvation to anyone. Jeff, do you think he could have just saved Saul? God does not owe salvation to anyone, so if he doesn't owe salvation to anyone, he surely doesn't owe it to everyone. He doesn't owe it to everyone. He doesn't owe it to anyone. 
1979. I went to a Bible camp. Best I could tell from when we'd line up and pray and do the Pledge of Allegiance in the morning. There's probably about 100 of us. I was nine. It went up through high school. They didn't separate us. We all heard the exact same teaching in the morning and the exact same preaching in the evening. I don't remember. I'm sure some probably got saved on Monday night. Some, no doubt, got saved on Tuesday night. This guy got saved on Wednesday night. Because God broke light on my mind and my soul and my spirit on that Wednesday night. And he didn't do it on other people. Well, Jeff, you were probably a really smart nine-year-old. Give me a break. It's not because I'm smarter or better. Saul is not better. Saul is worse. It's just the grace, the sovereign grace of God. I will save you. And he doesn't have to save everybody. Number two. Before we write it, would you go with me? First Timothy. First Timothy. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, so we only need to take a moment. Was it three weeks ago? We looked at four verses, so this morning I'm just touching the last two. First Timothy chapter 1, look at verse 15. Saul, who we now call Paul. First Timothy 1, verse 15. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I'm the foremost of the sinners. But, Saul, Paul says... But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Do you see verse 16? I'm the foremost of the sinners, but I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display. He made a display of me. Jesus made a display of me. He made an example of me. What's the example? Write it down. Because Christ has saved the foremost of sinners. He is, God has forever nullified anybody's claim to say, Hey, I, man, I've sinned too much. I've sinned too much. God will never save me. You can't say that. God has already saved the foremost of sinners to nullify that claim. No one in here this morning needs to think this. Preacher, do you think if I really meant it, if I were to confess my sins to God... And really put my faith in Christ. Do you really think he would save even me? Man, you don't even know all that I've done. I've done some horrible things. Guys, that's the wrong question. I already know. That's, that's child's play. I know the answer to that question. The answer is yes. He will save you. The only question is, will you confess your sins and will you put your full trust in Christ? That's the only question. If you will do that, I already know the answer. John chapter 6, verse 37. You see it on the screen. It's the last text you'll see. John chapter 6, look at verse 37. Let me find it myself. All that the Father gives me, here we see the two sides of the sovereignty of God. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Do you think he would really save me? I've done some bad things. No, Jesus says, all that come to me I never cast out. If you're here this morning, you're watching online, you're like, I've never become a Christian. Do you really think... It is really that simple. If I confess my sins to the Lord and I put my faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross to pay for all my sins, I receive him as Lord, would he, would he take me? Oh, I know he will. Will you do it? That's the question. Will you do it? Will you do it today? That's the question. And then lastly, there's a universal principle illustrated in Acts chapter 9, and it's this. Saul. Hey, Saul. 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 Why are you persecuting me? 
The principle is this. The moment of salvation is personal. Between God and an individual. So we have this big Bible and it's full of promises. And it has broad general promises. Do you understand that for a person to go to heaven, there has to come a point in their life where they hear the broad general promises as if talking to them? Hang with me. You can go ahead and close your books. Don't snap the rings and all that, though, if you don't mind. Thank you for not doing that. Do you understand? What, follow right here. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Y'all understand there are people probably in the room right now, they believe that in their head. They believe that, but they've never done this. God loves me. So much so that if I'll believe his son, I will not perish. I will have everlasting. Have you ever made it personal? 1 John chapter 1, verse number 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you ever heard that and like, wait a minute, if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins, and he will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you hear that as, have you ever had that moment in life where you're like, If I call on the name of the Lord, I will be saved. If you ever hit that point, there's only one thing, and you will do it quickly. When you hit that point, and it's personal, you will do it quickly. John 6, 37. All that come to me, I will not cast out. If I go to Jesus, he's not going to cast me out. He's not going to turn me away. Why would I not do this? Christview, do you? Can I, I'm closing for you Christians. You're a Christian. You say, I'm already a Christian. When you read the Bible, do you rightly interpret it? And when you find promises that do apply to God's people, do you ever just like take them and say, I'm going to make that mine? I lied a while ago. Actually, I, did I say it's the last one you'll see on the screen? Because if I said that, then I didn't lie. I need you to finish here. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Go over there. 2 Corinthians 9. This is where I was in my devotions the other day, so I'm closing with Christians. The plan of God is for God's people to hear the broad general promises of God as specific to them. I hope I'm not twisting or trying to pull on emotions or taking advantage of a situation. I'm literally the other day, Thursday, and I'm kind of looking at my reading for the week and my kind of one chapter for five days, the weekdays in the New Testament. I've got some Old Testament reading, but I come across chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, I think, I even went ahead because I know these two chapters go together. Do y'all remember the context of this? It's 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church in Greece about raising money for the poor saints over in Jerusalem. They're poor, need our help, need your help to go be a blessing to them. And he's taking this offering. And for two chapters, he keeps talking about this offering and I wish I had time. In fact, I had Connie even do a front and back, and it was like a really massive full sheet, and you guys would never read that. I'm going to challenge you. Go home this week, read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. In the context, it's a missionary offering to go help meet needs of the poor and spiritual things as well. And in all of that, as you read that, I want to boil it down. There are some promises. Look at chapter 9. 
There are some promises. I'm not promising you this. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is making a promise to God's people who are going to give to this offering. And here's the promise. And my premise is this. Do you ever hear the promises of God that are broad and general and you know they apply to God's people? Do you ever say, wait a minute. That means me. That's me. Saul, Saul. Hey, Jeff. Jeff, chapter 9, verse 6. In all of his talk of raising this money, the point is this, Corinthians. Whoever, this is a promise, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. I can promise you this. That will happen in your life. I promise you that. You say, based on what? This is God's word. Look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So if you're here this morning, you're like, and again, I hope I'm not, I didn't plan on that. I'm not trying to be opportunistic. We could talk about the power of God and the promises. Man, we need to make that personal. The presence of God, and make that personal, and the wisdom of God that's offered to us, we'll take it up, take him up on it. Are you here this morning, and you're like, yeah, I hear you keep talking about, and now we're down to last week for this offering. I just, I don't know, I got this, that, and the other, and can't really afford. I'm just going to throw it out. Somebody probably needs to take this personal and need to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm going to read this. Whoever sows sparingly is going to reap sparingly. I don't want to reap spare. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Verse 11, Paul promises you'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Lord, can I do this? That's where we need to land. God, can I do this? Is that what you want to invest? That's what you want to plant? I sound like one of them televangelists. I want to plant a seed. Plant a seed. Send money to our program, and I'll send you a little cloth that I've prayed over and sweat. And send it back. Like, yeah, I don't need your cloth. Sorry, finished on a sour note. Heads bowed, eyes closed just for a moment. If you've never confessed your sins, why don't you just right now, you say, I'm not a Christian. I can on the authority of the Word of God promise you, but you've got to make it personal to you. You've got to come to this conclusion. John 3, 16, 1 John 1, 9, Romans chapter 10, 13. These verses I read a while ago. You got to come, you got to hear it as personal. Saul heard it personal. God, you said if I confess my sins, you said if I declare you as Lord, if I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, it's whosoever and everyone, but I'm in that group, and it's the world, I understand, but I'm in that group. So why don't you just right now between you and God, you and God, Talk to God. He hears your thoughts. You can't, you can't slip a thought by Him. So go ahead and talk to Him. God, I am a sinner. I had a revelation. I am a sinner. I have broken your laws. But I do believe Jesus died for me. And I believe it's enough. And you will do it. So I'm asking you right now to save me from my sins. I receive you as my Lord. Why don't you ask Him that right now? Christian, let's don't mistreat each other. We're one body. Don't displease our head. 
by mistreating each other. Christian, are you obeying the simple commands that you already know to do? Or are you not doing those things and waiting on God to give you some individual commands for just your life? The Lord's answer is, you do the basics that I've already commanded. And then as you're doing that, I will show you what you need to do. Pray with me. Father, I thank you. I thank you for doing what I don't deserve. God, you don't have to save anyone. You don't have to save anyone. It is what we don't deserve. And God, I understand you, you don't have to save everyone. And you don't save everyone. And so God, I just want to say thank you. And I'm joined by my brothers and sisters in Christ. All of us right now are talking to you. Lord, you know my version was 1979. You broke light on my soul then. And I thank you for that. I thank you for that Wednesday night. And I pray for my brothers and sisters right now that they will just say thank you for your sovereign grace. Just grace. We can't boast. We, we cannot boast. You just give us salvation through Christ. Thank you for your indescribable gift. And then, Lord, I pray that that would flow through our lives. And we'd be cheerful givers back to you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.